episode 19 of First Strike. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Brian's lying. I'm not late. I've been here for a while now, but... Um, Always late. Keep, keep continuing that, Brian. Um, I was here. He was late. <laughs> they're both witness to my lateness. Uh, the show, as usual, is brought to, brought to you by the good folks at FaceToFaceGames.com, the number one place to get your Magic the Gathering singles. Especially if you're in Canada, they ship sealed product, everything, all that good stuff. So definitely check those guys out. And to our awesome patrons. Uh, for this episode, we've got the Hamilton Connection back, or the Ontario Connection. We've got Robert Lombardi in the house. How's it going, Rob? What's up? Glad to be back. I feel you know, I was getting some jitters not being on last week. <laughs> <laughs> we've got Dagger Ford in the house. How's it going, guys? It's been a while. Yeah. And we got. Of course, Brian Gottlieb, who uh, I've, I've only now realized, like, my girlfriend thought he looked like a certain celebrity when I showed, like, he said, she said, James Franco. But uh, then, Brian, Brian, you mentioned you look like you've had other celebrities, right? And I've I, had other ones said to me back when I was, like, a younger and more handsome man. I used to hear Enrique Iglesias and uh, Robert Downey Jr. But I don't agree with any of these. And especially not the James Franco one, but I, I told my wife that, and she was like, yep, 100%. They're right on. So, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. So I, I guess you were onto something. Uh, some of your older pictures, when you uh, were, like, you have less facial hair, I definitely see Enrique a bit in the eyes. So definitely Maybe. see that. Okay. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about Admonket a lot. Uh, spoilers, what they think about, these guys think about the mechanics, how they fit in Brian's chart of mechanics if, they, if he approves or does not approve of this uh the the new mechanics that just came out today uh we're talking about modern masters brian just did a huge video set review for us at madderprive.com dagger four has been drafting online and so robert has, has played a few i think and uh then we're going to talk about the gp that just passes uh, this past weekend and lots of other stuff but just let's just get to the meat of things let's talk about Amon Ket. Um, the first thing that I saw on Daily MTG was Blake's, our friend Blake, who's been posting us basically every week on their MTG Magic Daily article uh, that shows all the coolest posts around the internet. Um, he posted a punch card to show some of the newer mechanics that were going to come to Amon Ket. And when I saw that, I, I was confused. But before we get into that, let's just, I guess let's just get into one of the mechanics. So one of the new mechanics is called Embalm. So I'll just read a gist from the website. Embalm is an activated ability you can activate if the creature card with Embalm is in your graveyard. Notably, you're not casting the card from the graveyard, so things that counter spells won't work against the Embalm ability. The original creature spell can be countered, of course, but that just puts the card in the graveyard. I think you see where this is headed. To activate an Embalm ability, simply pay the Embalm cost and exile the card. You do this anytime you could cast a sorcery, meaning during your main phase when nothing else is happening. When the ability resolves, you create a token copy of the card. But as you'd expect, going through the process, a mummification causes some changes. It's got that whole undead thing going on. So it's a zombie in addition to whatever creature types it used to have. You'll find lots of ways to take advantage of its new zombiehood, I'm sure. And now that it's all service all the time and doesn't care about whatever it was it cared about while alive. 
it's white instead of whatever color it used to be. One more minor change is that it doesn't have the mana cost a card has. And yes, every card that has Embalm will have its own token. Of course, so the first thing that we think about is unearth, and instead of the creature coming back, you make a token that is now in addition to its original types, a zombie, and it's now white. Let's start with uh, Mechanic King Brian Godley. <laughs> what do you think about the mechanic? Uh, well, I honestly have, I have mixed feelings about it, but before I go into my feelings on it, I will preface by saying this is super early in kind of the spoiler cycle. We have no way of knowing you know, how prevalent this mechanic is. It might only show up in a few cards, like something like Fuse. So uh, it's a little, a little too early to speculate, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, because that's what we do around here. And uh, when I think about this mechanic, I see how it interacts with the limited format, and I'm excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to playing limited with this. Uh, this is a tool along with cycling, and I'm sure there's probably going to be a card that has Embalm and cycling on the same card, um, which serves to make sure you get to play magic in your games unlimited. You're going to have access to creatures. If, if you're flooding out, you'll be able to cast your creatures from the graveyard again. Uh, limited is good when both players are able to utilize their mana on every turn and the game is decided by decisions, not who kind of like curved out and, and who did things. You know, one player just went straight into a vehicle and the other player did nothing the whole time. Uh, so I could see Embalm having a very positive effect on the limited environment. Um, now going to a couple of my gripes. And this is a gripe which seems to be um, almost encouraged by Wizards with the inclusion of these little embalm punch outs on this punch card it seems like wizards actually wants you to take this card from your graveyard and then when you exile it as part of the embalm cost actually put it back into play as the token like they want you to put the embalm uh token the little punch out thing right onto the card and that's weird that like doesn't that doesn't actually flow with the rules of magic like people are going to then put the card back in their graveyard and there's going to be all kinds of confusion um it needs to be represented by a token. I understand why they're doing this. Like they, they want to make sure that the game state stays clear, despite the fact that these creatures are going to have, you know, complicated abilities. The first embalm card we see is able to block two creatures or multiple creatures. I forget exactly what it can do. Um, but this feels a little strange to me. And the problem is the alternative where you don't have access to the token. And this has always been one of my pet peeves with design. And this comes back from when I was learning magic. and. As a kid, I was, number one, very poor. Number two, lived very far away from the nearest magic store. It was like an hour and a half drive. And very rarely did I get to get new magic cards. Um, so I always think about cards which require another card to function. And I really dislike them. And this doesn't require another card to function, but it seems like you're really incentivized to have the token for your embalm cards. And I worry about people who open a pack, get an embalm card, and don't have the token for it. Now, I know that's a really small thing, but just coming from my background, whenever that happens, I do think about it. I think about it as a small cost to the players. Um, so yeah, I'm a little torn on Embalm right now. I, I, don't, I'm not, I, I don't have positive things to say. I don't have negative things to say. I think there's a little bit on both sides, and I want to see more of it. So. Okay. Uh, what do you think, Dagger 4? Um, I pretty much agree with what Brian said. I think he made a lot of really good points. Um, I really don't like the idea of them putting these little embalmed token punch-outs on the cards. I, again, it's just going to encourage bad game state representation, and it's going to make a lot of confusion for players. And the reality of the fact is they have to, because they know that, you know, basically at every FNM draft, at every 
time this card is played in limited, with the exception of probably at you know a GP top eight table or a feature match table where they have all of these tokens available, people are going to be taking the card out of their graveyard and putting it in play and saying, I am bomb this. And like it's just gonna cause a lot of confusion for people in the long run. And realistically, the only person you can place blame on is the the people who designed the mechanic. There's a way you can design a mechanic that at least functions relatively similar to this that doesn't involve this type of confusion. Um, there's a lot of ways you can go about doing it. I'm not going to start going through all the iterations, but there there is a way to do this without having to make 15 new tokens to represent all these embalmed cards, if that's how many they're making. Um, yeah, so I, I don't like the way it functions as a card in Paper Magic. I think the mechanic's going to work a lot better on Moto. Um, from an actual function perspective, or from like a gameplay perspective, I think it's great. Um, it helps smooth out bad draws and limited. It, the card that they've already spoiled is, is pretty good if you look at what it's doing. So, I just want to jump back in real quick because I thought of something. Um, if, if you think about it, there's a set right now that uh, Battle for Zendikar cares about what's been exiled. Like uh, the, I, f- I forget what the mechanic is called, but a lot of the Devoid guides put exiled cards back into yeah. graveyards. So you think about people, and obviously this is a constructed issue, not a limited issue, but you think about people using those little embalm tokens and not representing that that card's removed from the game, that's a real problem with an already existing mechanic. So uh, just another thing I'm a little concerned about right now. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't really understand the purpose of the, the embalm token. <laughs> it wasn't clear to me reading the rules. Like, I know Brian and Vince kind of alluded to the fact they think that it's for when you don't have the actual token. But I think maybe it's for indicating that the exiled card got to the exiled zone via embalming and not by, like, I don't know, Tormod's Crypt or whatever. If that's true, then I don't literally hate (laughs) the stupid token because then it's a way for you to signify that I've embalmed three cards or something throughout this game and maybe there's some other, you know, embalm lord that cares about something like that and that would be something that's very difficult to track. especially since you have cards like Thought Not Seer or whatever, Transgress the Mind still in the format, which maybe, you know, weren't supposed to be in the format, but they are. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I think the mechanic's very powerful. I think it's very good if this was a purely digital game. Like, if just Moto existed, I think that this would be very sweet. It would make a lot more sense. Uh, in paper, it's kind of stupid. I think maybe they should have templated it to be more like Monstrous. So you embalm the card, it literally comes back in with an embalmed counter on it, and then there's some text on the card that's like, if, if an embalmed creature would go to the graveyard instead, it's exiled. And then, like, you don't have to worry about any of this garbage that we're discussing, right? It's like, the stupid counter makes sense, it's easy to track, you don't have to print new tokens. I don't know. I'm kind of disappointed in the implementation, but the mechanic, uh, at its face value, is obviously sweet. It's flashback for creatures, and uh, I am definitely interested in the value that it brings uh, for both limited and constructed. Uh, someone did, in the chat did know that it doesn't trigger price amalgam, which is sad for all the zombie fans, but it's probably correct in that price amalgam would be very annoying and standard if <laughs> they printed 10 or 12 more creatures that just triggered it for doing what you normally want to do. <laughs> so, yeah, good on them for, for noticing that, I guess. Um, someone in the uh, chat also mentioned um, Rob Barsky from the First Strike Nation. I wonder why they didn't just print the embalmed side on the back 
And Brian, you think that's still problematic? I, I think that doesn't solve the issue, right? Because it's still taking the card out of the zone where it's supposed to be, the exile zone. And I mean, you, you have a different rules issue. That it's, it's, a, it's a different mechanic at that point. This one is just exiling the card and putting the token into play. That is creating a new card basically on the backside. And, and there's a lot of similarities. And I think that's like an interesting mechanic too. Um, but that would also trigger prized amalgam, right? Which, I mean, really that might've... That might have caused some of these issues. I, I, that's a lot of speculation, you know, and going pretty far down the rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, just like Rob said, there, there's, there's elegant ways to handle this. Um, and this feels inelegant. And I love his point about the digital TCGs because this is the second time we've been talking about a new card and brought up the digital TCGs again. This, this does feel very digital. Um, you can tell they're, they're taking their influences from what some really great designers are doing um over in other games and they're kind of wearing them on their sleeve right now which is a good thing you should be open to new influences and I, and I like that they're paying attention to their competition but it's hard to implement these things into paper magic and uh you know i i'm not willing to say that this is wrong this could be really interesting it's it just feels a little weird right now but a lot of new mechanics do you know so we'll have to give it time and play with it and then we'll be able to make a more informed assessment of it Okay, but well, I guess so far three thumbs down for initial for first impressions. Uh, I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle. I haven't gone down yet. Your middle, middle. Implementation is stupid. Power level is very sweet. So I'm, I'm like this. We're all in the middle. We're all in the middle. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the, to the next mechanic. Exert. Uh, when I first read this, it just sounds like I could hear Robert in my head. Like it just the it just sounded like he was reading it to me. Um, Exert allows creatures to give a little more effort to produce unusually good results. You make the decision whether to exert a creature as you declare it as an attacker. If you choose to have it exert, an ability will trigger and grant you some bonus. As a trade-off, the creature won't untap during their next turn. It's tired. Needs a nap. Attack for later. You don't have to exert the creature as it attacks. If you don't, no ability will trigger and it will untap normal normally during your next turn. Note that as you declare attackers, is the only time you can have it exert. You can't wait until later in the turn and then exert it. When your next untap step rolls around, if the creature you have exerted is untapped, nothing happens and the exertion costs you nothing. Maybe you found a different way to untap it or maybe you gave it vigilance. You are clever. Okay, let's start this time with you, Robert. How do you think about the exert mechanic? Uh, I'm like totally down on this mechanic altogether. It's... uh... I think the name is very stupid. I think it sounds stupid coming out of my out of my mouth. Like, uh, yeah, I'm going to exert my dragon. Uh, I just I don't know. That just sounds stupid to me. And maybe I'm alone on this one, but it just it feels awkward uh, to to speak that. Um, so I think the semantics of it are kind of stupid. And I think the mechanic is also like pretty low power level. Um, it's just. Not a beneficial mechanic. It's all downside, right? So you choose to exert it, and now it's going to stay tapped for a whole turn cycle. Um, I don't think the dragon's doing something overly powerful where you typically want to exert it uh, on a regular basis. So, like, you play it for five, you're probably, it's a 4-4 flying haste, right? So you probably want to beat down. Um, Having an ability on it that's, like, kill one of your opponent's creatures, and then do nothing with this card for the next turn. Doesn't seem particularly great uh, in Constructed anyways. 
it's obviously just fine in limited. In limited, you're fine to go long, go grindy, get in for four, uh, tap a creature, do nothing the next turn, get in for four, uh, kill a creature, not tap a creature, sorry. Deal four and, and keep it tapped like every other turn. That's still a reasonable card. You constructed. Uh, if you guys think this is playable, I think you're on drugs, but <laughs> we'll see. I just, I can't imagine a card uh, with this keyword on it that um, that will be at the right power level that you'll want to keep your your creature tapped for an additional turn to get whatever ability uh, it spits out at you. Now, um, if you're really hell-bent on making it work, I think this works with always watching. So maybe uh, everyone should pick up their always watchings. If they print some really good or reasonable white exert creatures that are cheap, then uh, I guess always watching will become playable again. I don't know. This mechanic sucks, though. <laughs> okay. Vince, what do you think? Is Rob crazy? Yeah, Rob, Rob could not be more wrong. Okay, so the first thing Rob was talking about is that the, the name of the mechanic is bad. And that's like completely ridiculous. The, the things that I look for when I want to evaluate how a mechanic is named is if the keyword or whatever they're using to describe it helps me to understand what's going on. Like if a card has flying, I understand that that now means that it probably can't be blocked by things that don't have flying in general. I get the idea of what flying means. First strike, same idea. It's probably going to attack first. Exert kind of gets me to what exert is doing. If, if it's exerted, it's not going to untap, but it's going to be doing something beneficial. Rob tried to then say exert is all downside. That's actively not true. You get a payoff for using the exert ability, which is dealing four damage to a creature. So you don't just decide, nah, my creature's not going to untap this turn. It actually rewards you for doing that. There's, there is a trade-off. There's an actual decision point, which I also like about this mechanic. It, it forces you to make correct decisions or make good decisions, which is a good thing. It makes the game more interesting. Um, I also like that it, the, the keyword, uh, like from a sentence structure way works really well. You can just say when you exert this creature or you may exert this creature, it flows really nicely. It's crisp. It's not, it doesn't require 15 additional words to explain what's going on. Um, yeah. So all of that, I like about it to the card that's been spoiled. This card is great. I don't know what Rob is saying, saying this card's bad. The fact that they gave it haste is kind of your solution to it having exert being a downside, because if it didn't have haste, you're essentially, it comes in exerted, so to speak. Um, you're getting the four damage in, even if you exert relative to a summoning sick creature, right? Um, so having this card come into play, kill a creature, and attack potentially a planeswalker or your player down, uh, your opponent is obviously very strong for five mana. The upside is that your opponent's now put in this really, like, awkward scenario where they have to decide whether or not they need to commit removal to this card or continue doing their thing and the reality is that if, if they let you untap with it again and you exert it again, they're probably not winning that game. Especially like this card will kill two creatures to deal eight damage to your opponent over three turns. That's, that's for one card, that's pretty reasonable. So even if it came in killed a creature, hit your opponent and they used a removal spell on it, you are way ahead in that scenario the vast majority of the time. So I imagine this card will see a reasonable amount of play. Um, obviously, it's contingent on where the format goes, but it would be—I would be shocked if this card didn't see play in, in standard. Mm-hmm. Brian, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's—I guess there's a few things for me to respond to. Uh, so we have to talk about the mechanic as a whole. We have to talk about how wrong Rob is, um, and <laughs> we can move on from there. Uh, 
So exert as a whole. In the chat, uh, Hayne mentioned that this seems a little lazy. And I think he's right. It does seem lazy in the same way that flying seems a little lazy and, and trample seems a little lazy. Uh, someone posited that this may be an evergreen mechanic going forward. And I could totally see that. I mean, this kind of this is a, an effect we've had in the game for a while now, skipping an untapped phase. Um, I, I, you know, I've seen some concerns about tracking. I don't think this is that hard to track. We have effects that do this now. Things like, uh, what is it, Crippling Chill, I think is a, an effect like this. And, and there's plenty of other effects where things don't untap. Um, I'm sure there's more prominent ones that I'm blanking on right now. But this seems fine. It, it, it does feel a little lazy, but in the fact that it could be used in every set going forward. And uh, like Dag said, this makes sense. This is, if, if you were to tell me your creature was exerting, I, I would think they were doing something along these lines. Just like if a creature was flying, I would think they would you know, kind of conform with that rules text. So uh, I'm on board with this mechanic. And the hero Rob be upset that this is presenting us with choices. I mean, like that's, aren't you a good player, Rob? Don't you win all the time? What you want is more choices in the game. Like, that's exactly what you want, because more choices equals less variance, equals better players win more. I mean, more decision points, for me, is never going to be a bad thing. I, I, and this one is not really that complicated, too. It's just a good, clean decision point, where if you're a good player and you make that decision right more often than your opponent, you're going to benefit from it. Um, as far as this dragon goes, this is a really good card. I, I mean... I'm not just going to run through everything that Dag said because I think he hit on most of the points, but I will mention that like the best card in the format is Gideon. And this is a nice answer to Gideon, like a clean answer to Gideon. There's not many of those where you deal with both his token and his body. Um, So I, I, you know, Rob is saying that Avacyn is better. Well, it's all about context and not every red deck plays white. I mean, I know Rob has been playing nothing but Mardu for, you know, six months now. So he has forgotten that, but this is an effect that can go in other decks besides just Marty vehicles. Have you seen the metagame percentages lately? <laughs> lately, yes. But in theory, this is a new set, which should change those percentages. So, uh, yeah, this is just a, a good card. I mean, the rate seems solid. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I can't see a lot of reason to be low on this card. This is going to see some play. Um, I'm not going to call it a format-defining card. I, I, it doesn't seem to go that far, but the rate's really good. It, it does a lot of things you want from your 5-drop. So, yeah, I'm excited for this card. I just feel like paying 5 mana and not having a thing happen happen guaranteed is not where you can spend your time in Magic anymore. Like, Avacyn is like you spend 5 mana, and uh, usually... You completely wreck your opponent, whether they kill it while the trigger's on the stack or not. <laughs> uh, this card is like, if they have open mana, uh, they can spend two mana, and you spend five mana to do nothing. It's just like, typically, that's not a place where you want to be uh, in standard. Like, it doesn't protect itself in any way, and your opponent needs to be tapped out for it to be useful. And it's not even a blowout <laughs> when they're tapped out. That's why I think this card is... <laughs> We'll see. I mean, I, I just don't see how this... If, if people aren't already putting four Avacyns in their deck, no one's putting any copies of this in their deck. That, that's my argument at this point. After things Such rotate, we see... What, Such what a five, card. Yeah, of course it's a different card, Rob, but power level not, of the cards around it matter. I feel like you just described with your counter-argument Virtuous Gearhog. Like, yeah, people are not playing four of them. Like, it's but not they're playing stuff. in standard. It, it's, like a, it's like a two of... And it's not, it's not even very good. The deck's bad. 
Okay. Like people want to play it. They feel like they should because it's like this goes good with the cards in my deck. And it's like, yeah, you can do that. You can put all those cards in a deck. They look like they synergize, right. but like you just your win rate sucks. So cool. Sure. <laughs> We're also talking contextually about a format though that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, of, and, course, uh, of course, of course. I mean, very I'm speculating on this on this red dragon based on uh, it being one of the eight cards that are uh, legal in almond cats <laughs> and nothing else is printed. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it has a year to go before I'll probably consider sleeping it up, though. Uh, Edison's got to go. <laughs> All right. Um, while we're on just discussing cards, um, I think Dagger Ford in the before before the show started, we brought up the demon, the 5-4 demon for two black and three colorless, Archfiend of Ifner. Uh, it's flying whenever you cycle or discard another card, put a minus one, minus one counter on each creature your opponents control. It's classic cycling for, for two colorless. Vince, what do you think about this card? Uh, I think this card is very good with an asterisk. Like, I think it really depends on how deep cycling is a theme in this set that's obviously going to have a big impact on the power level of this card. I think even just looking at it as it is now with no additional context, the card is obviously pretty powerful. It passes the vanilla test, like a 5-4 flyer for 5 is decent. Um, the fact that it cycles for 2 is awesome. Usually if you get a creature with cycling, you're not getting a good body for the full price because you get that trade-off of the cycling costing two or getting that value of the cycling. Um, this could be an interesting card in, in like the blue-black zombie deck where you're playing things like Haunted Dead. Maybe you're playing like a Key to the City deck. If you can get the discard effect the turn you play this card, it has to be very good, right? Like playing a 5-4 Demon or a 5-4 Flyer for five and then infesting your opponent's board by turn like the time you untap has got to be really good like i i can't see that not being a powerful effect again it doesn't pass the rob test of being a five drop that doesn't automatically win you the game but we'll see how relevant that is in the upcoming form. no no that's not fair that's not fair i mean <laughs> if uh if key to the city was not a card um i would probably be more inclined to agree with you you just don't want to be spending five mana uh, and leave yourself open to get just unlicensed disintegration and then beaten down. But the fact that Key to the City is legal um, and that black is a color which might be paired with another color that cares about improvise, so you can really take advantage of Key to the City with like Metallic Rebuke or something like that. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe there's something there. Plus, like you have the zombie sub theme, like you stated. So there's some things there that that make this card. A little bit better. The fact that it has cycling means it's like never terrible. It's at worst a different card in your deck, which is uh, a very, very strong and secretly insane ability or line of text to have on a card. Um, I think that if Smuggler's Copter was legal, I would be really, really excited about this card. As you can just like slam it, get in with Smuggler's Copter, your entire opponent's team gets uh, minus one, minus one. And if, like, if you're playing Black Brand with Key to the City, you also could have Key to the City up and like just give their whole team minus two, minus two permanently, uh, kind of almost guaranteed uh, when you slam this thing. Uh, so maybe this is the real reason why Smuggler's Copter's banned. I don't know. <laughs> Are they expecting us to use the minus one, minus one counters from the punch card? 
Of course. <laughs> How else are you going to tell the difference between your winding constrictor walking ballista counters and these ones? <laughs> Brian, are you going to have a bag of these? I guess so. What choice do I have? <laughs> I'm going to have a huge sack like Santa Claus filled with counters because now there's just counters everywhere. I can't believe they put minus one, minus one counters and plus one, plus one counters in the same set. That's crazy to me. And I, I know they've definitely said before, we do not do this because of this reason. Like uh, people just use whatever's lying around for counters and you're making tracking so much more difficult, but whatever. That's, that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about this card. And I uh, generally agree with my co-host. There's, there's something here. I want to know more about what's supporting it. Um, you know, obviously there's already some stuff out there now, but there could be some really powerful effects that play well with this. You know, maybe a street wraith re- reprint. I, I don't think so. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. But something like that is, um, you know, cheap cyclers, more discard outlets. Um, I keep thinking of that card that Manalus Dredge plays. Uh, what is that? Phantasmagorian or something where you like, can just discard three cards right in the spot. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's, this is an interesting effect. There's a lot going on here. The rate on its own is fine. The cycling's good. Um, this, this feels like a card that's going to get passed over, saying all that stuff. Like, it just has that feel about it, right? Like, it's one of those cards where we talk about it a little bit, it's got all the power level in place, but it, I mean, what Rob is saying about creatures is true. Immediate impact is, is what we look for these days in a card. And I, I was kind of on board with the dragon because, um, you know, it gets that haste attack and he's right that if they have mana up, they can certainly negate that. But, you know, you can certainly engineer a turn where you're not very vulnerable to a removal spell. Um, this card has some of that same effect if you work for it. And the question is, do you dilute your deck by working for it to such an extent that the rest of your deck is unplayable? And I think we really are reliant on seeing what other support cards are out there before we can answer that question. Um, so I am interested in this card. I, I, you know, I'm not going hard one way or the other right now, um, but there's something there that's, that's a powerful effect for sure. There's an interesting uh, piece of text on this card. It says, whenever you cycle or discard another card. So like, why, well, the, like, why the need to call out cycling if they're going to allow it to trigger on a discard of a card anyways, right? Like cycling means, as you can see, it's right there, to yeah. discard, draw a card. So maybe there's going to be cards that cycle uh, that you're not discarding or something, or like you're cycling them into exile, or I'm not sure. Does this... Uh, no, it still works with Madness, right? Um, I, I'm pretty sure. Because you, you're discarding yeah. the card first, and then it goes into exile. So like, I, I just don't... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they missed that. It just like unnecessarily says cycle on it. Uh, yeah, there's something going on there. It's it's weird. People were confused of whether a cycle trigger, excuse me, triggered it twice because you were both cycling and then you discard a card as part of the cycle. I don't. I don't think that's the case. I mean, that would be pretty crazy. I guess um, it depends whether another card replies to ju- uh, applies just to discard <laughs> or if it also applies to cycle. Yeah. It's good that the English yeah, language is a very clear way to represent things. <laughs> uh, no, it's so weird. Uh, I, this is definitely weird templating. I, I will assume that there's a reason behind it. Um, if there's no reason, they're just getting very lazy. And they need to I'm concerned that the reason well. is they want it to, to make sense to new players. Like, they want to make it clear that cycling is triggering it, triggering it not because, you know, there's anything additional going on. That would be some really, I guess I would say, like, over-inclusive templating. Like, you need to be conscious of your new players, but this would be kind of, 
I mean, cutting off your, what's the phrase? Cutting off your nose to spite your face or something like that. You know, like, on a card where they care about that, you'd expect flying to have reminders next time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it would be a very strange decision, but I don't know why else they went this way. I guess we'll have to wait and see what they say. Uh, I'm going to watch this one in six months. If nothing comes out that... We'll make, call them out on card, it. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> you'll see it here first. We'll be vehemently uh, angry. Another yeah. very minor detail about this card, for those of you who are interested in specking, <laughs> Living End is spiked on Moto as they release this card. Obviously because it implies that there might be some good cyclers for that deck. So keep your keep oh, your okay. eyes open for the Living End tricks that might be coming out in Amonkhet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're gonna... What's the plan? To get this in play? And, no, no, no. Just like, there's gonna be some other Cycling nine nine or with trample or something. <laughs> they're, just, they're specking real hard. Yes. <laughs> Cycling is back. It's on a creature. Cool. <laughs> Living in might get better. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's get to the last uh, mechanic. I'll leave. I'll leave Robert last just because in the notes he says uh, it's sick. So it's the brick mechanic. Uh, we haven't seen many brick cards outside of, uh, I think, the Oracle's Vault that has been spoiled. Um, I've been fortunate enough to, once again, it, it felt pretty last minute because the set is slowly getting spoiled. But I got an email from my friend Blake today, this afternoon, that I was getting two cards. One of them's rare and one of them's a common. And they both work around the brick mechanic. And so I'm excited to share that, but I have to wait two weeks. So I, I have to wait until all the way until April 10th to be able to spoil that. And uh, instead of doing and showing the art like I did last time, because the problem with that is that people actually, some of you guys watching were trying to print screen or capture it and then posting it everywhere. And everybody was like mad that they couldn't get a high quality picture of it. And that they have to like, guess what it was. They're like, what's going on? That's like the worst way to spoil it ever. When really I was going to release it officially at midnight or 3am or whatever. So we're not going to do it that way, but we will uh, spoil it on the show and uh, tell you exactly what the card does. Um, but let's get to whatever we think about these counters in general. Uh, Brian, what do you think that we get? Like, bricks are part of the punch card. Yeah, I guess that means there's a lot of them. Um, again, I can add this to my satchel of dice that I'll be carrying around with me. Maybe I'll just bring, like, huge bricks and just slam them down on the table. <laughs> um, so I have a huge satchel anyway. Um, I, don't, I don't have a... I, I can't say anything about this mechanic. Honestly, I, you know I love to hear myself talk, but in this particular case... I, I really can't say anything about it because it, it's just a counter, right? Like a brick counter is just a counter ultimately. Um, so this, this tells me they're going to use a lot of cards that get counters on them over time to represent something being built up. I think this Oracle's Vault card is interesting. Um, but as far as the mechanic, let's see what else you're doing with it. Uh, if, there's, if there's interesting cards, then bricks are fun. If there's not interesting cards, bricks are lame. I mean, the actual, it's, it's just a counter, right? There's nothing to this quote-unquote mechanic as of right now it's just it lets us know they're going to be using counters a lot so i'm going to reserve all judgment on this one until i see what they're using these counters on the card oracle's vault 
uh, is pretty interesting to me. I, I mean, I don't think it's quite constructed level powerful. It's certainly not uh, constructed as we play it now level powerful. Like grinding out a small incremental advantage over three turns for a lot of mana doesn't really fly in the face of Gideon and uh, Cat Combo. But it's a neat card. I'm sure like commander players probably love it, right? As I'm uh, going to be a burgeoning commander player soon, I need to start wrapping my head around these things and figure out exactly what's going on in that format. So, um, yeah, neat card. We'll see what else is going on with Bricks. <laughs> I wonder if they're going to print like other counters as, as punch cards. I wonder if they're going to do that, Brian. Do you think it's like a, a, a per set thing? Like they're going to do it every set now? There'll always be a little counter card? This is the <laughs> test run for that. This is the test run for that for sure. Maybe. If people like this, then you'll you'll see it two years from now. Like on it's a neat idea. Set. It's a neat idea in a vacuum. The problem is when they lean on it to make things more complex, which is what right now it feels like. What that's what they're doing. There, there's all these different kinds of counters, which is why they're required to go to this punch card. Like as magic has existed up until this point, I think having these things included in packs would have been pretty neat. But I'm a little concerned that they're just going to lean on the fact that they have this punch card now to do more outlandish things, and you already see it a little bit with minus one, minus one counters and plus one, plus one counters being in the same standard. So, yeah, I, I gotta see where they're going with this. Vince? So, <laughs> my initial... I, I chatted with Rob a little bit before this episode, and my initial take on, on this brick mechanic was that, like in Bomb, it is a good idea that was executed really poorly, at least so far on the text for this artifact that we've seen. Like, if I if bricks matter in this set and building is a thing, I it should be a mechanic that feels more like a mechanic. This Oracle's, I think it's called Oracle's Vault, you could have worded this card and had it would have nothing to do with bricks and it would still function identically the same. We did not need bricks for this card to function the way it does. If the card instead said something like build three for two mana, pay two, put a brick on it, you can build it three times. And then it said once it's completed building, now it does this. That now feels like a mechanic, at least. It feels like the flavor of the card is being expressed more effectively. But the way it's templated on this card, it's just a, it's them adding flavor for no reason in terms of actual gameplay. It has no impact on the gameplay, except that now you get to place bricks on your card, which in my opinion, is ridiculous, but that's just me. There might be other people that appreciate it. Um, now that you've said, because I didn't know that we had a common and a rare that also had bricks, so maybe maybe bricks goes deeper than I thought. So I'm mildly higher on bricks now than I, w- I was before. Uh, I'm very excited to see what our spoiler cards are. Hopefully there's enough bricks that I care about bricks, but at this point I don't care about bricks. I just hear you say the word brick is making me laugh. <laughs> it's a great, the, how about the word brick for a mechanic is wonderful, especially because of the context in magic. Like there's so many just ways you control your opponents with bricks. So it'll be fun for that. At least. Okay. Okay. Mr. Sicko. What's up? What's, yeah, your, like, what's your sick the opinion? best part about this mechanic is getting a counter called a brick counter. And when you need your opponent to brick, like I told the chat, you can just, keep throwing them at your opponent and you don't have to say anything and they just know that you want them to brick. So you just carry around hundreds of these things and when you're at a point in a match where like, you know, they're playing mono red, you're at three or something and like, if they don't draw a burn spell, you're going to win next turn. 
then you just shower their deck full of brick tokens. It's, I don't know, it's like an in-meme from the game that they're, they're giving to you. It's perfect. I feel like this will provide lots of meme content for Magic <laughs> for, the, for the foreseeable future. Um, as far as the actual mechanic goes, yeah, I mean, Egypt, you think about, when you think about Egypt, you think about, you know, very grand architecture, and I think they're really trying to, like, get that, you know, that message across with this um, mechanic. So, like, you're building this Oracle's Vault, and it's, like, kind of useful as you're building it, but once it's finally built, then the Vault is completely bonkers, and, uh, you know, like, once this, once the card has three counters on it, it is, like, completely outrageous. It's like a Aetherworks Marvel, like, power level, right? So, I don't know. Uh, I feel like having this and, and Marvel in the same, like, block after block is kind of stupid, because now you have, like, two four-mana artifacts that are in blocks where Eldrazi are legal that let you cast cards for free, um, you know, with relatively low investment in your deck construction. So I think that part is kind of stupid. Um, likely Marvel and the energy strategy from Kaladesh is just better than this, so I don't really think this might see any play in Constructed until after Kaladesh rotates. So I guess they rotate together now. So yeah, this card is probably just completely overshadowed by Marvel. It's not doing anything interesting, but it'll be good in casual circles. Like I, I feel like any blue-green commander deck that untaps things a lot or whatever is going to have a lot of fun with this card as play a large commander table game, by the time it gets around to your turn again, it has three counters on it, and you've probably activated it twice for free. Um, so that that seems like it's pretty good. It's probably going to get banned in commander, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess the, my last thoughts on, on these stupid perforated token things is that uh, I think Wizards is really like just trying them out to see if they're useful. So they're doing a bunch of weird things that seem stupid just to see how people react to them. That's why you have like tokens that don't really make sense, like in Bond, uh, whether the, the thing was exerted, like it's not really hard to remember it was exerted. It only stays exerted for a turn, right? Like we have Frost Breath, we don't have like a Frost Breath token that they printed 10 years ago to indicate that it's not going to untap for a turn. And these Brick tokens and minus one, minus one counter tokens are, are just kind of like, you know, not really necessary either. So I think if people react to these perforated cards well two years from now, you'll start seeing them in every set. And they'll like stuff like monstrous. When we go back to Theros, we'll have a little perforated token instead of uh, just being represented by it having counters on it already or whatever. Um, I think that in the next two years, uh, Infect will become legal and standard again. It's they're like they don't really want to mix counters too much in standard. I know there is a little bit of mixing going on right now, but likely Infect will be legal when you already have minus one minus one perforated counter thingies, uh, also legal and standard. Uh, or or Wither uh, will come back, I guess, one of those two mechanics. So that'll be my prediction. And as far as KYT spoiler goes, the 10th is a Monday KYT, which means that they gave the spoiler to the cast and not Mana Deprived, so <laughs> please share. <laughs> you definitely gave it to me. <laughs> um. Well, um, <laughs> no, no, you just, you just messed up my train of thought there. You got me. You got me. Good accomplished. <laughs> um, I think Brian's going to need to bring a bigger satchel, like poison counters, everything. You're going to have everything in that little satchel of yours. Every counter <laughs> possible I'll be bringing with me. I will say, though, that now in the course of this conversation, I, I'm very confident 
that they'll be builder creatures. And when the creature comes into play, it's going to put like a brick counter on something. And that'll do a lot to f- kind of hammer home that part of the flavor, I think. And if Whoa, I'm wrong, you, then I'll be very surprised. Log into my email? No, no, I'm just saying <laughs> it like that. Um, <laughs> I will be very surprised if that's not the case. Um, if that's yeah. true, this Oracle's fault uh, might be a little better than I said it was. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's true. But I agree that as of right now, this doesn't feel like something that's being built. This just feels like any other magic card. Right. And I think it's going to take um, builders to really hammer home what's going on here. Um, we've hit more than the halfway point of uh, the show. So if you love the show, guys, always a reminder to hit that thumbs up. It really helps us out in terms of getting more viewers and getting more traction. Um, let's move away from Amoncat. This past weekend, we had um, the last, I guess the last limited event where we're going to have this format before Amoncat releases. It's a revolt sealed and draft. Our friend Alexander Hayne top aided. Joel Larson ended up winning the event. Rob, you've still been grinding. Like even in the first strike nation, I think people are like, is this still relevant? And why are you showing us your, your five O's? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, <coughs> the April mocks is Kaladesh, uh, eighth revolt, uh, sealed. So I'm practicing for that in hopes to, uh, top eight and then win, I guess. <laughs> um, but this, I, so I think the sealed format is, is, Pretty good, actually. Um, it's reasonable. Like it's reason- like there's some steel formats that are really bad. I think Shadows was worse. The the one knock I'll say against it, and it's like all high synergy sets, is that you can open a pool, which like just your likelihood of opening a pool that just doesn't work uh, is is higher. Um, but if you you know there's it's not super common. Maybe like I don't know, ten twenty percent of the time you open something that's like completely terrible. Um, but the other 80%, you you know, you can scrounge together a reasonable deck, and there's lots of different ways that you can build it, and because there's artifacts, there's a lot of options, there's a lot of different ways to go, and it does really uh, put pressure on your sealed deck building skills, um, and people that have very good sealed deck building skills will tend to do better uh, in this format than their average format, so I think it's pretty skill-intensive, but I wish the synergy level was just ranked a little bit down, and then it would probably would be one of the better sealed formats um, ever, instead of just kind of like Medium, maybe medium plus. <laughs> uh, Vince, did you have this similar feeling? I think you drafted a bit of this uh, format. Yeah, I completely disagree. Um, I don't think this sealed format is a format that rewards good deck building. The sealed format is like you open your pool and you look for a specific set of uncommons and rares, and if you have them, you play them, and then your your deck is built for you, basically within the color start and rarity start on Magic Online. Like, there's not a lot of interesting decision points when it comes to figuring out how to build your deck. It's like, do I have enough artifacts and improvised cards? Can I build the improvised deck? No. Did I open any rich-scale Tuskers? Can I play green? No. Did I open these bombs? No. I'm not winning. Like, it's pretty much that clear-cut in the sealed format, in my opinion. Um, Rob made a point about artifacts being in this format, which helps sort of smooth that kind of awkwardness of non-synergy out the problem is almost all of the artifacts at common are just really bad they're not good enough to like fill your seal deck with cards that make it okay for you to be maybe light on one color or the other and the colored cards are strong enough that it basically forces you to just look at column counts of each color of playable cards and go those are the two colors i have to play i i don't think this is a format that rewards good deck building i think formats like 
The Cons of Tarkir, that was a format that rewarded good deck building. The Alara Block Limited rewarded good deck building. I don't think this is a set that rewards good deck building. And sealed yeah, anyway. Yeah, so when I was at like sealed 5 to 10 or whatever, I was definitely in your camp. <laughs> I was like, this sealed format sucks. Every deck is pre-built, and if you don't put a bad pool, you're just <laughs> just kill yourself. There's nothing you can do. But now that I'm at sealed, like, uh, I don't know, 30 through 40 or something like that, <laughs> uh, it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely different, and I'm playing a lot of cards that I wasn't playing before. Um, so, and I'm, I'm also not playing certain cards that I was playing that I was playing heavily uh, previously as well. So, I think there is like a little bit of a hump to get over before you can. I guess, like, if you were going to normally three two with your current understanding of the format, like you can probably actually four one if you were like ten or twenty sealed deeper, which definitely makes a difference in your Moto EV. And that's where I am now, so I'm happy about it. But when I was, like, in the 3-2 spot, I was, like, really angry about it. If I have to be Rob Lombardi level of Magic player and play 30 seals of a format <laughs> in order to understand it, format's garbage, I'm moving on with my life. I'm not playing 30 seals <laughs> of AER to, to figure out the weird, subtle interactions that I apparently am, that are going right over my head, Rob. That's fair. That, I mean, yeah, there's, there's like a reward versus time uh, argument to be made there. <laughs> For sure. But Kula put in like a, a million seals as well, and he ended up 9-0 day one. So there's something. There's something there. <laughs> I guess that's true. There is some payoff. <laughs> um, Vince, have, has there been things that you, on our show, when we talked about said i believe the episode was with rob name me one thing that has changed drastically of course a lot of jokes are made about your automaton evaluation (laughs) would that be the single most (laughs) biggest change or did you still play it to to much success despite oh god that card's not very good eh? (laughs) i that card uh so i was about two drafts in to this format when I made that evaluation. I'm like, and keep in mind, when I played that card, it won me at least three games. So I was like, this card's unreal. It has to be good. That was before people started drafting Blue Red Improvise, right? That was before people were winning the game on turn five and six with 4 4 hex proofs. They had played two turns earlier. This card is not good enough in this format at all. I should have made like some public statement to just get people off the card in case someone accidentally was still playing it in their decks. But yeah, no, the card was... Uh, I goofed it. I goofed it, for sure. I'll well, own that one. I'll, I'll give Vince a little bit of credit here in that we were playing a lot of sealed pre-releases before we had come on and made a bunch of judgment calls. And the card is close to playable and sealed. I found that a lot of games go really long and sealed. Yeah. Um, and you can... Grinding out value... Uh, even if it's just one card, it's definitely worth it if you have, you know, if you have an archetype that can support it. So I think uh, I think it's better there in draft. It's like yeah, it's pretty pretty poopy. <laughs> uh, what about you, Rob? Was there any one one thing? Just name one thing that has changed a lot since your those pre releases. Um. Yeah. So I mean, I was on the blue red improvised deck immediately. So. Not too much has changed. The deck is still lit. (laughs) 
I think uh, if if anything, maybe like Watchful Automaton has gone from being like a a twenty second or twenty third card to being like almost never making the cut, um, unless I'm like real hard pressed for a creature or an artifact. The card is just like not what any of the blue decks want to be doing. It doesn't block at all, and it doesn't attack well. Uh, and its ability is like not really where you want to be sinking your mana. So it's just and a lot of those decks, the uh, blue decks, really like they have other better places to put their mana, like casting under costed uh, haymakers and stuff like that. So I think that card is just like uh, just completely awful. I don't know. Ridge scale Tusker uh, definitely still the best uncommon. Definitely better than Untethered Express. And I'm still mostly down on vehicles altogether, uh, especially in sealed, as everyone's packing artifact hate and giving them expensive outs for their cheap removal is pretty bad. That, that's I, in sealed. That's probably been my my biggest change is that I'm playing a lot less vehicles uh, than I was before. Okay, um, you had you had mentioned Pukula put a lot of practice. He he ended up making it in top eight, like you said. Um, what, gearing up for the top eight draft, I was actually excited. I thought I'm biased, guys. Everyone knows that Hayne is one of my best friends. So when they were talking about showcasing two people, like their drafts in the top eight draft, I really thought they were going to show Hayne, not because he's one of the best players in the world, but also because he finished uh, in round 14. He was uh, alone at the top of the rankings. He was first. So naturally, I thought, because of his, I think he went 3-0, maybe, and 2-0-1 to make it to the top eight. But, but no, they decided to show, well, Joel Larson, I guess, which was a good choice. He, he ended up winning. And they showed Chris Pakula to follow his story back to the Hall of Fame ballot. Um, obviously, I would, would have much rather seen Hayne. And there's always this uh, discussion as to whether Pakula should be in the Hall of Fame and he actually, the last time he was on the ballot, he came really close, and then he fell off. And with this top eight, he's back on the ballot. And I wonder if he's going to get there. But, well, first, should he be in the Hall of Fame? We'll start with you, Brian. So any, any conversation I participate in with the Hall of Fame is complicated for me because I think the Hall of Fame as it stands right now is, is just terrible. It, it should not exist. Magic is such a young game, um, and if it is going to exist, there should be two people in it, Kai and John. Nobody else should be in the Magic Hall of Fame right now, because it's not the Hall of really good players, it's the Hall of Fame, and those are the two famous Magic players. Um, when, I, when I see someone like Owen Turtenwald in the Hall of Fame, and this is to take nothing away from Owen, this is in no way bad-mouthing him, he is an amazing Magic player. There is no doubt in my mind that if a Hall of Fame continues to exist, he would one day be an appropriate member of that Hall of Fame. But his inclusion now doesn't feel correct to me. And obviously, you know, it, I'm talking completely just in my own personal take, and Hall of Fames are always going to be very subjective, but I need more history. I need more like prolonged greatness. I want to look back, you know, 20 years and, and think about guys who really shaped competitive magic, not just guys who are really good at competitive magic over the last five years, which Owen is probably unquestionably the best over the last five years, but that's not a hall of famer to me. That's a great player. And I want him to continue to have to be a great player and, and not just have uh, the automatic invite that he has right now. 
I don't know. I, I'm not comfortable with the way the Hall of Fame has progressed. And I, I also think now, honestly, the threshold for inclusion is a little low for my liking where it's, it's not even just absolutely outstanding players who are making it in. Like if you look at the ballot this year, I think there's a noticeable drop off in quality over what's been included over the past few years. And this is problematic and it's only going to get worse over time. Um, so I, I mean, the cat's kind of out of the bag now at this point, they're not going to be able to pump the brakes on the hall of fame at this point, but this is a very long winded way of saying that I don't like the hall of fame, but if it's going to exist in this form, then you know, I think you can tell by what I've said. Chris Pakul is a no-brainer for me. He's a historical figure in the game, invitational winner, had success in Lera, you know, going way back, and continues to have some, you know, certainly much less success to this day. Um, but you know, an occasional Pro Tour competitor, and also the thing that you miss about Chris is that his impact in cleaning up the game in the late '90s was tremendous. He was. You know, one of the pioneers of fair play, this was a time when every Magic player was cheating. This was how you played Magic. You tried to get your opponent over and over, tried to rules lawyer them all over the place. And some people went further than that and were using mechanics to try and cheat. Um, and, and Chris really spearheaded the effort to stop a lot of that. Um, to me, the Hall of Fame needs to be about a lifetime of participation in Magic. Chris certainly has that lifetime participation. He's left a very positive legacy in his time with the game, he needs to be included. And I, I think, I think he's going to finally make it. I, I, he was within one vote previously. And I I've heard, this is like very secondhand and I can't confirm it. I've heard that, um, John Finkel didn't vote for him cause he was sure he was going to get in and used his vote somewhere else. And now personally like crusades for, for Chris harder than anyone. Now this is complete hearsay. This could be total nonsense. Um, I mean, maybe we should just ask them. I'm sure. I, I think John would probably be open about it if that was the case. I don't think he did it out of malice. I think he did it thinking that Chris was just in and he could use his vote elsewhere. Uh, if it did happen, which is, again, total hearsay. Please don't quote me on this. Um, but, yeah, I, I hope this is Chris's time. I, I think he's a, a fitting member of the Hall of Fame. Hmm. Rob? Yeah, so... <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> oh. um, so there's some requirements for the Hall of Fame, right? <laughs> you need to be on the Pro Tour for at least 10 years. Uh, and then you need 150 lifetime Pro Points. So I, I think those are the only two requirements. And then there's a bunch of people that are allowed to vote whether or not, you know, you get in or don't get in, right? I think you need to hit 40% of the of the votes or uh, I'm not sure how like for at least 40% of the people need to have voted for you, for you to, to um, ascend into the hall of fame status. Right. So the reason that it feels weird for new, like the new greats to be inducted now, like Owen um, and Efro and, and LSV or whatever, like people at TV or whatever is that when they began, they began their pro tour career a long time ago, like, you know, 10 years or more. Um, or probably not, not too many more than 10 years, like 10 to 15 years ago, they were not doing great uh, because they were like us, you know, they're pretty good, but not insane. And then they became insane or they got on a team that was insane and then they leveled up and, and then just had like a run of success for like five years where they top aided like three to five PTs or in some cases more. Um, so then the people who are voting on it 
they have their min requirements, right? And it seems like really in today's age, four PTs, unless you have some other insane credentials to back you, is where the people voting you into the Hall of Fame really want to see your pro tour accomplishments before they consider you. And there are people that are still on the ballot that have four PT top eights that are not, you know, do not get voted in, right? They're still waiting to be inducted uh, or, or voted in to be inducted. So the fact that like anyone is thinking about Chris Bakula potentially now that he has 153 lifetime pro points and two PT top eights from 1967 or, or 19, sorry, 1997. <laughs> it feels so long ago. Um, and then like a bunch of reasonable success in the GP circuit for the next 10 years and then nothing for 15 years uh, again are just like completely out of their minds. I agree that like he's done a lot for the game, but there's so many people that have done a lot for the game that don't have um, like what most people voting see as like professional dominance for some extended period of time. Right. Like if you, you want those people in the hall of fame so that they have incentive to continue to show up at PTs even though like they don't really want to play magic anymore or like it's not financially relevant for them. You want to keep them in the, you want to keep the greats in the game. You want to keep them playing. You want to keep those storylines going 10 years, 20 years from now. Right. I just, I don't think that Chris Pakula deserves it based on his uh, professional merits at the PT. And it's been, I think if he gets a top eight this year, then you can start to talk about it. Right. Um, but I don't think at any point he was such a dominant force. Like you just can't put him on the same level as like someone like Yuya Watt and Nabi or something like you just don't think of them on the same skill level. Like Chris McCool is very good, but he is just like, not like Yuya, like one of these guys that are just like completely bonkers. Right. So I think that really uh, goes against him. And I would definitely be looking to see, I mean, if he gets a PT win, I think it's, you're getting very, very close to it being, a guarantee and anything short of that, you're probably waiting for the next PT top eight before, uh, before he's really a lock to make it. And I think that uh, it's very unlikely for him to make it in this year. <laughs> I would be very, very surprised. And like, uh, I don't know. I, I didn't look at the full ballot, but like Josh Hart Layton's right. Going to be on the ballot this year. Finally, he's, he's reached his 10th year. He has five PT top eights. Like he is a lock <laughs> to get inducted this year. And I don't, I'm not sure that anyone else is. Um, so we'll we'll see we'll see how natural it goes for for Pakula, but uh, if it's not a top eight performance, I don't think he should be expecting uh, an induction uh, this year, anyways. Okay, Vince. Yeah, I think my like the, this whole Christmas Pakula making the Hall of Fame issue for me it comes back to the point Brian made earlier, and it's really the fundamental issue is that the Wizards what they're calling the Hall of Fame is not a Hall of Fame. It's like this kind of system that weirdly financially rewards people for getting into that players have a very serious incentive of trying to get to that makes you want to stay and maintain being an active player, which is if you look at sports, that's the exact opposite of what a hall of fame is. A hall of fame is something that you're supposed to honor someone's legacy, someone's prestige in the, in the, in the game. And that is not at all what the wizards hall of fame is. So in the current understanding of what we call the Hall of Fame, does Chris Bakula belong in that? I'm sorry, no, he doesn't. He hasn't been very relevant recently in terms of his ability to win consistently. 
His wins come from a very long time ago when I would argue, and I think a lot of other people would, that it was relatively easier to get those results than it is today. Um, and he does need more results in order to get into that. I think that's a complete shame. I'm not saying that that's a good thing. Chris Bakula absolutely deserves to be in what is called the Magic Hall of Fame. The problem is Wizards has ruined that name by attaching it to this thing that isn't a Hall of Fame. So there's this really awkward interaction where a guy who is probably, honestly, top five most important people for competitive magic over the last 20 years is not in the Hall of Fame and, weirdly enough, doesn't deserve to be because of the way Wizards has created the Hall of Fame. If Wizards had instead called what is the Hall of Fame, like, master tier, like in League of Legends or, or the, the, the real pros, or called it something else and given those people the money for appearance fees, whatever it is, and said, you know, if you're good enough, you'll get inducted and you'll get these opportunities. And then also had on the side, these are people who have made significant contributions to Magic over its history. Now you can start including judges, game developers, people who aren't necessarily just pros, but are very important to Magic in the game. And I get no recognition because they're not, they would never be eligible for this thing we call the Hall of Fame. So really my, my beef with this whole Chris Pakula thing is more an issue with what Wizards has done to the Hall of Fame more than anything. Vince and I can never just be on the cast together because we agree on absolutely everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's problematic if we ever have to argue with each other. But, uh, Always keep Rob on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love your point, though, about like, the inclusion of, of people like judges. And, and what about designers? Like, if there's a Magic Hall of Fame, shouldn't Richard Garfield be in it? Like, I understand it's a Pro Tour Hall of Fame, but I would much rather have, like, how much more exciting would the Pro Tour be if, you know, someone like that was in the Hall of Fame and they got invites to the Pro Tour? Like, wouldn't you rather play against Richard Garfield at a Pro Tour than someone who's just going to be on the Pro Tour anyway? I don't know. I, obviously, this is very, you know, weird. And I, I think about someone like uh, Sheldon Mennery, who I believe is the inventor of Commander and, like, was one of the highest judges in the world for a long, long time. Like, that dude should be in the Magic Hall of Fame. He's, like, one of the most important figures ever. And he's certainly never going to be in the Hall of Fame because it's, and, and yes, it is called the Magic Pro Tour Hall of Fame. That's the easiest way to dispute this argument. But there should not be a Magic Pro Tour Hall of Fame. That's a silly thing to have for the game. There should be a tier of really elite players who get invited to every Pro Tour for the rest of their lives. If that's what you want to do, I think that's kind of a stupid thing to do as well. Like, this should just be kind of a standalone entity with its own benefits. You know, maybe a once-a-year invite. So you can use it, you know, if... Obviously, you don't want... And Richard Garfield's kind of a bad example. He probably wouldn't come anyway. But you don't necessarily want to write, invite Richard Garfield to every single Pro Tour. Like, that's kind of silly. But if it was a once-a-year invite that these Pro Tour people got, I think that's cool. And it's way more exciting than the way the Pro Tour stands now. It, you know, it's something that is just born of... I mean, how old is the Pro Tour now? It's, it's been around for a while. And kind of... I think they didn't think through the long-term ramifications of starting this program. Um, because it's now reached a point where it does not feel anything like a hall of fame when they got to that first class yes they were picking a reasonable hall of fame at that point in time but we're so far down the road now i, I don't know man I, I i don't think they i don't think they will ever scale back this program because they they can't take away this accolade from someone they've already given it to but it disappoints me every time like i, I just wish we had a better hall of fame for magic not what we're currently operating under um 
what would uh, what would Flores have to do since he listens? Uh, Mike, what would Mike have to do to make it to this type of Hall of Fame, Brian? He would be he would be in the Hall of Fame I'm talking about. I think he's a reasonable inclusion. I think like him, Patrick Chapin. If you're talking about you know writers, um, you know PV would be included still because he's an amazing player and an amazing writer. But when you open these doors to to people who didn't just have dominance on the Pro Tour and actually make a Magic Hall of Fame, yes, you start talking about people with Mike and. You know, I, I will I will certainly pick on Mike about his play on a regular basis and his deck selection. That's fine. But his contributions to the game are indisputable. He has done so much for writing, so much for theory. He's He should be a Magic Hall of Famer. That makes sense to me. When you say a name like Mike Flores in the Magic Hall of Fame, yeah, okay, that, that seems reasonable. When you say a name like, and I'm not picking on him, I just keep using him as an example because he doesn't feel right to me, Owen Turtenwald. That doesn't feel like a Hall of Famer to me. He feels like the best player in the world. So please understand, Owen, I'm not, I'm not talking down to you. You are an amazing Magic player, but you don't feel like a Hall of Famer to me yet. And I, under the current system, you 100% deserve it. I just wish the system was different. Okay, you guys are like just on another level about talking about something that doesn't exist. <laughs> it should exist. That's the problem. Yeah, but this is not what we're arguing, right? It's like, this is the Magic the Gathering Proger <laughs> Hall of Fame. This is created to reward players for having dominant performances specifically at the Pro Tour. If you have not had dominant performances at the Pro Tour, get foe. That's what it's for. I agree that if they create some new thing called the Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame, and that, yeah, there's a lot of different people that should get inducted. Um, we don't have that. Probably they should have that, uh, but I don't, also don't want to see those people playing at the Pro Tour. I, I think you would probably be very disappointed to watch someone like Richard Garfield play a game of Magic against someone like Kai Bude or whatever. <laughs> Day 9 Tour invite, right? That's, like, that's the StarCraft guy's name, right? Like, he was at a Pro yeah, they Tour. Stopped, and... They stopped all that nonsense, though. Those were special sure. invites to cross-promote. Um, I think that's how they stuck Dave Williams back into Magic, but they don't, yep. and Efro, but they don't do that. It's like, we, you know, they said, we don't do that anymore. That's not how we want to conduct the Pro Tour and qualifications for the Pro Tour. They're merit-based only. So Look, the, the way you make something into the thing you want is by changing your criteria. And like, we can't just sit here and if we don't like the way the hall of fame is now, we're not just going to sit here and say, keep doing things the way you've been doing it. No, like, we just need a new thing. We need a new thing. They don't need to be in the program. Hall of fame. We just want magic, the gathering hall of fame or contribution hall of fame or something. Yeah. Like these people should be um, publicly recognized uh, for all eternity or whatever, for their contributions to the game that are not related to their performance on the PT. But the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour Hall of Fame is not the place. Okay, <laughs> but like you, you're 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 misunderstanding the fact that it's not that there should be another thing called a different Hall of Fame. It's that calling what is currently the Hall of Fame the Hall of Fame is wrong. That's the problem. It's because called the Pro Tour Hall of Fame. It doesn't matter. It is you can put a Hall sure. of Fame for people who did well at the Pro Tour. Okay, so it in the NHL Hall described. of Fame. In the NHL Hall of Fame, you don't have active players desperately trying to get in, so they get paid more. That's the problem. It's not a Hall of Fame. It's like a, congrats on being good. Let's keep rewarding you for that club. It's not a Hall of Fame. The thing right. that you're describing, that other thing, should just be the only Magic Hall of Fame. Call yeah, other thing something else. You can't treat this like a sports Hall of Fame, because sports has an end of life. You can only play for so many years, and then you're done. Hockey is like, I don't know, unless you're Yammer Yager, it's like 
10 to 15 years or something. Football's like 10 years. And you're done, right? Uh, you you right. retire at, at 31 or 32. You take meds for the rest of your life. It was probably a, a bad life decision when you look back on it. But um, magic is different. After you're good, sometimes you continue to get better. You don't just get worse and stop, stop playing and forget about it, right? So, like, uh, Hall of Fame in sports is more like a Lifetime Achievement Award that you're giving out, right? Like, this player was dominant when they could be dominant. In the Pro Tour Hall of Fame, this person is dominant. They're still dominant because this is a card game and it's not a sport. So, like, you're trying to create these correlations to sports and have the same, you know, the same feeling and the same system there. But I just, I don't think it's going to work. I don't know, maybe KYT, is there, like, a chess Hall of Fame? Like, how does that, I don't even know. Like, is, is that a thing that people okay. do? Like, how does that work? I haven't followed it, so I, I don't know. Even You're if a resident chess expert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, homework for next week. KYT is going to tell us how the chess Hall of Fame works. And if it works like magic, then you guys should just stop whining. <laughs> I mean, they just have a annual world champion that, and then they just have a hall of champions that uh, that I know. Like, well, I can't name it on the spot right now, but I, I can name many of them, and that's those are the ones that we remember. Whether there's a Hall of Fame for people who aren't champs? Not, not that I know of. Um, there's the, I'm not chess hall, of fame, by the way. Hmm? Sorry, there's, Brian? there's a chess hall of fame. Okay. There's a there's the World Chess Hall of Fame. It's in Florida, I believe. It might have. I imagine it has contributors or, or stuff like that, or, or builders and stuff like that. Um, before we move on to the last topic, just our quick thoughts on Modern Masters and. It's uh, what I think about Chris Pakula's chances of getting in. And if Brian's story, uh, what he's heard is true, it could be pretty sad because as they change, because they've been changing the selection committee. And as I feel like as newer players are part of that committee or newer content producers or people that they've picked. I mean, I felt they picked me really early um, as someone that, I mean, I put myself out there in 2010, but I, I was I had a vote on the Ben Stark year, so that was really early. And then there was a lot of blogs and podcasts that also had a vote. That there was a lot of debate at that time whether these people had a vote, especially those that who've never even played at a pro tour. Um, now there's a lot of they've changed it, and a lot of players when they write their articles about who they vote for, it's really like, oh, well, I had to ask. I, I wasn't there when they played. I had to ask like someone I respected, like John Finkel or Kai, what they thought if they were voting for them, and and that's how I, I would vote for them. Um, so, yeah, it might be hard for Chris to make it, depending on the the pool, the selection committee pool. I feel. Going to our last topic, Modern Masters draft. Um, if you got to check out Brian's very comprehensive first impressions of every single card, it's on manatorprime.com. It's on our YouTube channel, and you've. You want any updates from him as he gets more experience with the set? You, you'll have to join our First Strike Nation, which you can do at patreon.com slash first strike. Now, another one of our content producers at Man of Pride, Travis, Travis Sowers, a streamer by the name of Semulin, when he jumped in, he's like, wasn't prepared and had an absolute blast, which is not what, uh, Rob, you, you feel about it. <laughs> Yeah, so this, uh, so I've only played draft on Magic Online in leagues, and it's like some of the worst Magic I've ever played in my entire life. Um, 
there's just I I don't know these very high synergy sets where the power level of cards is really ramped up. I very strongly feel that leagues is not the way that you want the player base to experience it, and uh, the payouts in Moto are it's just like very hard to run a profit uh, on them the way they're constructed. So it's like six two two two. But if you weren't at a table that a opened a better than average uh, card pool, um, and then also you weren't in a seat that could like really take advantage of that better than average card pool, then your odds of three owing are like so close to zero that you're just spewing value um, on Moto, like just hemorrhaging. <laughs> and it's just, it's very bad and it's very frustrating because you're making the right selection for your seat and you're like, okay, yeah, wow. Like, you know, I'm getting late cards in my colors but they're not great cards, but I'm also like not really passing anything great. So if I was like actually playing with the people at my table, you know, I think there's like a 30 or 40% chance I can, I can three Oh with this deck. It's like a reasonable deck. Um, and if I get a little lucky, I, I should be able to win. Um, there's almost no way I'm not, not at least two wanting, but when you have that kind of deck uh, in a league, you're just getting bent over in the third round. Cause someone is going to have, you know, been passed like, all kinds of bomb rares because people are incentivized to cooperate with each other so much more in leagues than in a normal draft. Um, that if, if, yeah, like if they get, you know, opened a bunch of advent of the worms and uh, populate cards, then they're going to get them like that. That's the deck you're going to see. And you're going to get just smashed by it. And I've been run over by people that have like four or five mist ravens. Like what table did that? Like, I don't, this would just never happen. <laughs> like <laughs> if, if I was sitting at the table, like I'd at least have two or three of those misframes. So I don't know. It's pretty frustrating. I think it's very bad for leagues. Um, it's probably not terrible if you're just like drafting at a store uh, because then the power level is flat between the table and it rewards good drafting. But I think leagues in general reward getting lucky a little bit too much and I hate them and I hope they would go away. <laughs> Agreed, Vince? Well, my understanding was that the question was about modern masters and not leagues. So I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm gonna talk about the format a little bit more. Um, <laughs> modern Masters is a super fun format. Like it's I actually thoroughly enjoy drafting this format and playing it. I've drafted a multitude of different decks. You can catch two of them on the Mana Deprived channel. They didn't go super well, but that's life. Um but yeah, this format's a lot of fun. I've tried some... The blue-black decks that I've been drafting are definitely the best. I think those are the, the two colors that work best together and have the strongest rewards for going into them. Um, I'm hemorrhaging tickets on Moto, so a little bit going to Rob's point. When you 2-1 a league, you lose 12 tickets, right? You, you paid three Modern Masters packs and four tickets to get in, and you get back two packs for 2 one that feels bad. That is not a good place to be. Like, obviously, it's the same variance uh, as it would be with a normal draft, or the same sort of payout structure, but the problem is the variance is way higher because the packs are more expensive, right? Um, maybe the league thing is a problem, too. I'm not going to go into that because Rob covered that, but I'm losing money playing this format and still doing it. That says a lot about how fun I find a format. I will very rarely do that unless there's, like, a significantly good reason for me to keep playing it. And I've had a lot of fun drafting this format. You, you're always going to have a good deck, which is nice. 
if you have a bad deck in this format, you need to seriously reevaluate how you're drafting it uh, in general because there's a lot of ways for uh, this format to really help you salvage a bad draft because there's gates in every pack and there's signets at uncommon and there's just a lot of good fixing opportunities to just salvage a, a potato draft. Um, and the, the cards are all good and they're fun and they're from formats that I've liked. So all thumbs up on Modern Masters. Great format. Brian, any, any words you want to chime in here? Uh, I haven't played the format yet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't drafted it. So uh, if you're looking for the, the hottest inside take uh, <laughs> on Modern Masters, go check out my draft guide, which obviously is authoritative and is never wrong. In fairness, I, I do say what I'm making the guide that I, I haven't played, and this is just my evaluation of the cards, um, and that should only be used as a starting point and use it to kind of vault from there. Um, I, I do think there's merit in evaluating cards that way prior to drafting, but uh, you should all be drafting at this point and starting to make your own conclusions um, because I'm, you know, card values change as you play with them, and I, I wanted to do a quick first pass to give people a baseline. Uh, hopefully my guide is achieving that, but I haven't played the format yet. I don't know why. I don't even have a good excuse as to why. Like, I played League of Legends for like three hours today. I could have been drafting. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just didn't want to. <laughs> that's, that's really what it comes down to. Right. Um, Alexandre Lucier uh, asked the First Strike Pod Twitter account. Many pros will preview masterpieces tomorrow unless you have any insider info. Care to make some guesses tonight? Eh, I don't got any, but I, 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 won't, I did want to comment how they're spreading the spoilers in the past couple of sets. This one, the last one, is interesting. They're trying to reach more and more different avenues um, when it comes to video content producers, when it comes to, like, tomorrow, a bunch of people are streaming. Like, they, they gave it to a bunch of streamers to stream their spoilers. So they're trying different avenues and, and seeing what works. And uh, it's really cool to see. As for guesses, do, do any of you guys have any guesses? Want creatures. To creatures. They're bringing back creatures from the dead, like mummies, right? I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. I mean, it fits with the theme. Uh, and they just did, like, artifacts. So they're not, they're not trying to build artifacts. I like the idea of, like, mummified creatures being <laughs> arisen from the dead. Um, and you can have kind of a cool art theme running throughout them. So. Mm, I like that. I like that, Vince. That's just, that's a sweet idea. Like, actually just picking a theme, like, zombifying the artwork on every cool creature ever. That's so sick. And then, like, the next time you do, like, metal work look like did you imagine if you you like foiled out your deck with like a a zombie tarmogoyf a metallic tarmogoyf or like angel tarm like people would just go nuts that's actually a sweet way to do masterpieces to keep it going so my guess is zombie everything just old like sarah angel but like foaming at the mouth zombie that's my guess i think it's a sick idea i don't think that's gonna happen probably not they're going to listen to this and be like, damn. <laughs> how, would you, how would that ever be a thing they're going to do? They're just pretty angels that look like zombies? It would be cool. I'm ju- I never said they'd do it. I said it would be cool. Dude, mummies. mummies that. Bringing back mummies makes perfect sense. SDCC promo or something. Yeah, I understand. Printing zombie masterpieces or whatever makes sense. Like you have zombies, like the best zombies in magic. They would be the masterpiece. That would be a terrible masterpiece set but i don't think you can just change the artwork on non-zombies to look like zombies okay what's your guess then rob 
I think it'll be. Uh, I don't know. Okay. I, I'm, I'm actually. I'm actually not sure because like zombies doesn't really make sense. So it'll have to be some other overarching theme in the set. Like there's just not enough zombies, like good zombies, throughout Magic's uh, lifetime that anyone would care about getting fancy foil editions of them. So I feel like it'll be cl- more closely related to like cool, like maybe bolus related cards. So like the Elder Dragons are in there and like some bolusy themed garbage. So maybe it's just dragons. Maybe it's just dragons, like masterpiece dragons. Yeah, I guess that's where I'm at. Do we know the number? There's always like 25 we, and then 20. Are they consistently doing that from here on out? Yeah. Okay. So, so it's got to be like it's, cards. you have to have a theme that makes may, maybe at, at some point they just stop having themes and they're just like, yeah, we're going to print these 25 cards. <laughs> Random cards. Like Fishra's Bobble and Street Wraith and whatever needs to be printed right now because it didn't get. Didn't make its way into modern master. But I think that's twenty-five what I cards think. that are too expensive. That's the theme of these masterpieces. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why doing the theme idea is actually sweet because then you don't have to worry about like having every card in terms of the actual text of the card match a theme. You can just be like, the artwork theme is X, and here's twenty-five cards we reimagined in this artwork. Yeah, that and I think you can do that plane. as long as the artwork isn't a creature type. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe zombie isn't the way to go, but maybe it's like everyone reimagined as an Egyptian god or something. I don't know. Something like right. that. that. Yeah, that would, be, that would be fine. That would allow them to not apply any theme and print what right. they wanted. Right. But I don't know. Bolus is a dragon. I'm putting my stamp on dragons. Alright. Um, I gotta give a comment of the episode of War to Zylog. Or are Brian and Vince going to make out this episode? Because they've been agreeing a lot. Let me reach over to his box. (laughs) Wait, I'm going the wrong way. (laughs) Um, As always, uh, thanks, guys. And thank you guys for watching. If you you enjoyed the show, this episode, give us a thumbs up on the YouTube channel as well. Definitely check out our Patreon at First Strike. uh, Patreon.com slash First Strike to be able to get into our First Strike Nation. I think a lot of Hamilton people definitely love you, Rob, but they clearly don't listen to the show because they're trying to sneak their way in without <laughs> joining the nation. Um, but I'll set them straight. So get in there. We, we've got a lot of people that uh, are awesome. I mean, we've got misplaced Ginger. What, who else is better to have than him? Current uh, trophy leader. Just trophy master. I heard his father might get into the Hall of Fame this year. Oh yeah, his father, Chris Pakula, might get into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just want to shout out our Patreon producers, our First Strike producers. Um, sorry if I butcher your name. Isaiah Carrero. Did I get that right, Rob? One of your buddies? It's, it's definitely close enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kyle Smurchuk, uh, Dirk Pite, Misplaced Ginger in the house, and Adrian Murchison, all these guys, and some unnamed ones, anonymous ones that... Uh, I super appreciate. We all super appreciate. And we'll catch you guys next week.